Now is the time we bring you the virtual stage of our 11th Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, head over to the BBNR website where you can enjoy the entire day of archives of nine incredible speakers for just $29. Go to bbrconsulting.us and click on store. One more time, visit our store at bbrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Achieving Optimal Health Conference. I'm Kristen Kirkpatrick, and I'm so excited to be back presenting to you this year. I'm going to be talking about how to incorporate some low-carb options into your dietary pattern. So if you joined me last year, you know that I talked a lot about fasting. So this year, what I really want to focus on is a concept that I have seen a lot of success in both in myself and in my patients, and that's incorporating a low-carb lifestyle into your dietary pattern. Before I get into that, I wanted to kind of break down what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to start with talking about some of the eye-openers that we've had about COVID. Um, we are living in COVID, and we have now plenty of data in the past 18 months that does show that our dietary factors, our lifestyle, things like that have been altered because of it. And so Whenever I do a presentation on nutrition, it's very impossible to not cover that because we are all living it. And I'm going to talk about why you should consider some low-carb interventions, um, why this is something that's a benefit and not just something that is a fad. And then finally, I'll talk about how to implement it into your life. So let's start with looking at some of the metrics and data of what we have learned in the past 18 months related to the pandemic. Number one, we know that individuals that are most likely to be hospitalized or most likely to die or most likely to be ventilated are individuals that have comorbidities or obesity. So individuals that have type 2 diabetes, that have other chronic health conditions such as heart disease or are obese. What do some of the data show us in terms of why these populations are more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to die? A lot of the studies do point out that it has a lot to do with inflammation. As we look at something like a chronic condition or we look at obesity, unfortunately, there is an inflammatory factor associated with that. Anytime we have inflammation, we have the base of any disease, and it makes it harder for our body to fight off infection. So we have a lot of things that are incorporated in terms of our risk for being hospitalized if we did get COVID. But looking at our lifestyle should be number one. What changes have we seen since the pandemic? Well, a Harris survey that was done in the spring found that the average weight gain of Americans was almost 30 pounds. It was actually 29. The high end was about 50 pounds. The low end was about 15. So we have seen a massive amount of weight being gained during this pandemic. And this is due to a lot of things. Number one, we've seen an increase and habitual snacking. So people are buying more snack foods, keeping snack foods in the house, and of course, eating them. Because when you see a food, you're more likely to eat it. And most of us are still working from home. So we're surrounded by it. 
I've often said in previous conferences that our environment does not fit within a healthy lifestyle. It's hard to make good choices when we're surrounded by food 24-7, every place we go. And now that's occurring in the house because we're there and we're buying more of these products. The other thing that we've seen is a massive increase in alcohol consumption. So we have seen at the very beginning of the pandemic, looking at isolation, looking at depression, anxiety, things like that, that there is an increase in how much Americans are drinking. That then can contribute to weight gain. And of course, that can also contribute to a worsening liver health as well. We have seen non-alcoholic fatty liver disease continue to increase and it's not getting any better. So a lot of this is kind of normal. This is a disease that we see a progression for. And some of it is also, we're also in a pandemic and we're making some really difficult choices. And then lastly, on this topic, let's talk about some practical ways to support immunity. Notice I said support and not boost. So many of my patients have come to see me and said, how do I boost my immunity? But if you speak with immune physicians, immunologists, if you speak with experts in the immunology field, they will tell you that boosting is actually something you don't want to do. You don't want your immune system to go into auto drive. It's kind of sometimes what happens when we look at autoimmune conditions. So what you want is you want the response that is appropriate to the infection. And that is more of a supportive or balanced immune system. Diet plays a huge role here. Regular exercise, sleep, reducing the amount of smoking and drinking that you're doing. I just did an article for the Today Show a few weeks ago talking about what we can do for our kids, especially those that are not yet ready to be vaccinated. And I talked about the studies looking at secondhand smoke. So as parents, as adults, as people that are near our children, let's look at some of the habits that we can reduce to help our kids gain that immunity while they're waiting to get perhaps a vaccine. So all of these things are really important when we look at the pandemic. I don't feel we can do any nutrition presentation in this day and age without addressing this because, again, we are all living it. So let's get into a little bit of low-carb diets. Now, if you've joined this conference in the past, and you are someone who is seeing me again um, for maybe the fourth or fifth time, you know I always like to share my story. Why did I become a dietitian? For me, if I sum it up in 20 seconds, I was a fat kid. I went to go see a dietitian. I felt that that dietitian didn't understand me and the behavior change necessary. So that's why I got into this field. And even though I'm an expert in this field, I continue to evolve. I continue to learn. And I continue to have my bias. So as I got into my mid-40s, I started recognizing that my carb content had a huge determination of my weight, of my energy, things like that. So what I want to propose to you today as we look at low-carbohydrate diets is not looking at fads or not looking at things that like maybe are super, super restrictive, but just looking at where you can make small changes that could help with reducing the impact of insulin and blood sugar. This is especially true if you are in your 40s or above. The low-carb diet is actually not a new one. We know from the 1790s in the early 1900s, we know that low-carb approaches have been beneficial and effective, especially for looking at things such as type 2 diabetes and epilepsy, which I'll get to in a few more months. If we look at popular low-carb diets, just to give you a breakdown of what the content looks like. So we've got Atkins, Keto, Zone, Paleo, Primal, and Mediterranean. 
obviously keto is going to be the least amount of carbs you can have. And there's going to be some fruit involved in some of these diets, some fruits that is eliminated. My point in showing you this slide is that it really does kind of run the gamut on what you're going to see in terms of the choices that you're going to make. I would say for the most part, I'm pretty moderate carb. I'm not super low carb. There might be some days where I'm more in ketosis, but I'm typically not in ketosis from a day-to-day -day perspective. All right. So we'll talk about that. The other great thing is because research really drives the popularity of diets in terms of the medical community, I'm not talking about social media and a celebrity talking about what's the best diet. And I'm talking about the medical community because popularity has increased with low carb approaches. So has the research. So some of that research is what I'll show you today. And we know that there's benefits based on this research that are very strong and hard to argue against. Let's look at the definitions of low-carbohydrate diets. So no surprise, of course, is that we have varying definitions based on the organization that's providing them. If we look at the National Lipid Association and their scientific statement, we can have different factors of what the amount is. So you can go from moderate, low, or very low. I want you to think about these factors as you try to determine, okay, I can start doing this. You don't have to be keto as you look at all of these slides that I'm going to go through today. Maybe you can stay Mediterranean or maybe stay plant-based or you can stay vegan, but you can look at little areas where you can make improvements in reducing the amount of carb and then see how it relates to things like your weight, your lipid panel, your blood sugar, things of that nature. American Diabetes Association has similar numbers as well. So that percentage, of course, the TDE is the total daily energy, if you're wondering what that looks like. But really, if you're looking at the amount of grams, um, about 130 or less grams is actually considered low carb, okay? So that's more than you probably would have thought, but officially from our statements that we see, this is what we're seeing. What about applications of low carbohydrate diets and the benefits? So I said that there's a lot of studies. These are the six things that we see the most data Weight management, I will really focus on in this presentation, and diabetes. Of course, alongside that is metabolic syndrome, and that is a cluster of different things like having high lipids, having high blood sugar, things like that. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, we are seeing that low-carb approaches can be very beneficial. I am working on a new book for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that will be a very strong part of the new book. Epilepsy, this is probably one of the first reasons why research was done on the ketogenic diet and looking at the treatment of epilepsy. Diabetes, obviously, and then sports nutrition. We've seen some really interesting data looking at sports nutrition and looking at the benefit on actually a ketogenic diet. So it's really interesting to see when our athletes are fueled more by fats, what happens in terms of their performance. Let's look at obesity to begin with. Why do low-carb approaches work, especially when we compare them to a low-fat approach, which would be more high-carb? There's a few things. Number one, you have increased satiety. Okay, what does that mean? It means that you're fuller longer. Fat fills you up. So does protein. So when we take carbs out, we take away the ability for the blood sugar to go on that roller coaster. And you know every year I talk about that roller coaster. When we're on the roller coaster, we feel cravings, we feel hunger. It's harder to control that. So if we have more fat, we actually have an increase in satisfaction and a reduction in how much we actually feel we need to eat, regardless of calorie count. 
The metabolic advantage, of course, to that is better weight management. What about looking at the other perspectives of what low-carb diets and weight loss? We know that fat slows gastric emptying. So this goes to the fact of having more of that appetite suppression. So if it takes a long time for your stomach to literally empty when there's fat, it means that your stomach is filled longer, which means you're not as hungry. Uh, we know that dietary protein does this as well. And we know that things like ketone bodies, there's tons of research showing that these are things that actually help to reduce overall appetite as well. Now, when you think of the Achilles heel of any diets, it is your appetite. It is your hunger. How hard is it to control cravings, to control your portions when you're hungry? It's really hard. So if we can find things that we have small amounts of and then say, gosh, I'm no longer hungry, that is a win-win. So if we look at this from the most simple perspective, this is one way to consider this. What about comparing the effects of a low-carbohydrate diet and a low-fat diet? If you look at a three, a six-month perspective, if we go into nine-month perspective, what we see is that in low-carbohydrate approaches, and again, all of these are based on studies, what we know here is that there's more weight loss, despite the fact that there could be more calories consumed. So there's definitely a, a factor of that, and there's more fat mass that goes down as well. So one of the things that was really an eye-opener for me as a middle-aged woman was the fact that I felt like I got to 40 and I woke up one morning and I had a belly. And I didn't remember having the belly, but I feel like I blew out the candles on my 40th birthday and it just kind of went downhill from there. And of course, there's other things that can contribute to that. If we're perimenopausal, premenopausal, or menopausal, of course, the lack of estrogen can also impact belly fat as well. So what we know from the perspective of insulin and looking at increases of insulin, that can increase belly fat. So it makes sense that our fat mass content would go down if we are on more of a lower carb approach. What about cardiovascular risk? I've had a lot of patients say, gosh, I can't do low carb because there's so much fat there and I don't, I don't want my heart health to suffer. But if we look at the studies, again, this is looking at three different points of data. What we know is that cardiovascular risk typically goes down. This is why I said you can think of factors like a Mediterranean, a vegan. I've counseled individuals on doing plant-based keto. We don't have to think of the old terminology of how we look at low carb. If I tell you, let's consider low carb, I don't automatically want cheese and bacon to pop into your head. So I'll show you some options later in the presentation on how you can structure that. But an increase in HDL, massive increases typically in looking at lowering triglycerides, and then even looking at the Framingham risk score and what happens with that, we know that that improves with some of these studies. All right, so let's get into the meat of how you can do this yourself. How can you implement a low-carb dietary pattern? Now, number one, here's the first myth that I hear. If I go low-carb, I'm no longer going to get the nutrients. Well, you're taking away fruits, you're taking away vegetables, you're taking away whole grains, you're taking away things that I know are good for me and are not gonna serve me well in terms of my nutrient density. All right, so from that perspective, I'm gonna point out two different studies that compared different low-carb approaches and found that nutrient density actually did not go down at all. The key here is knowing how to structure a low-carb diet. If we go back to looking at that bacon and we go back to looking at that cheese, of course, if you eat that all day long, it's gonna be a bad option for you. 
it's not going to be great in terms of nutrient density. So what we have to do is number one, take the diet that works for us. And remember what I've said to you over and over and over in these past few conferences, the best diet for you is the one that you can stay on long-term. If it's sustainable, you can stay on long-term. That's the best diet. My patients will often ask me, okay, tell me like I lost 30 pounds. It's awesome, right? I'm your success story. And I often tell them to come back in three years and then they'll be my success story. Because it's not the weight loss you have immediately when you go on any diet. It is the sustainability of it. Can you stick with it? And can you keep the majority of that weight off? So think about that, number one, in terms of your algorithm of determining your diet. Here's the best diet for me. Now I'm going to structure it in terms of how can I make sure my nutrient density remains high, but I can lower some of the carbohydrate content in it. You don't have to worry about nutrient deficiencies. We have two very strong studies that show that, but you do have to really focus on making sure you're getting the nutrients that are necessary. So let's talk about those. First, let's focus on fiber. Fiber is a really big component. And there was a new study in the journal Nature that found that more moderate diets that were more low carb, even diets that got you into ketosis could still be higher in fiber. And this is a huge component. So think about this. Number one, fiber is not digestible. So fiber in and of itself will not increase your blood sugar, things like that. So what you have to find out first is what are the high fiber things I can have that don't have a massive amount of carbs? Broccoli is a great example of this. So making sure you're getting plenty of cruciferous vegetables, making sure you're getting plenty of nuts. If you're doing more moderate carb, you could have things like, let's say, some steel-cut oatmeal. You're just going to have a small amount. Or you could have a handful of raspberries. Handful of raspberries, eight grams of fiber in that serving. And you can have that on more moderate carbs. So as long as you're not going into ketosis, that's an option. What about this whole net carb approach? So if you're starting to think the wheels are turning in the brain that you want to start considering this, you might start looking for things that are advertised as like low net carb. So whether you see net carb, active carb, non-digestible carbs, it's pretty much the same utilization. I just told you that fiber is not digested. So what happens is when we look at a net carb calculation, we take the total carbohydrate in a serving, we then subtract the total fiber, and what is left is what we actually digest. So if I'm giving you an example of this bean-based pasta, what I'm showing you here is that it's got 19 grams of carb, 11 grams of fiber, I reduce them, and now I only have eight carbs left. So this I would consider to be a low carb food. I could include this, even though it's a pasta, really isn't, it's a bean. And the benefit of this, it's got a ton of fiber and it's got a great amount of protein. So that's one example. That approach only works for food. Let's look at a product comparison and why it's a little different for a product. So in a product, a lot of times what you will see is you will see the inclusion of some sort of sweetener, typically, not always, but typically, right? Especially on a bar like this, you're going to see a sweetener because it's a bar, or you could see fiber added in. So you can still take that same calculation, the 21 here minus the 15. The key on this one is what is the sweetener that's added in? So what do I mean here? Sugar alcohols are oftentimes added into some of these products to create the sweetness, and they're completely non-digestible. But not every sugar alcohol is the same. So what we know is that things like erythritol, 
you can subtract zero from that if it says erythritol, okay? Because that's a sugar alcohol that we know has zero effect on blood sugar or insulin. But if it's sorbitol, for example, you split it in half. Let me give you an example of what I'm saying. Let's say there's 10 grams of carbohydrate in a product and there's 10 grams of sugar alcohol in the form of sorbitol in the product. You would split that sugar alcohol amount in half. So you would take 10 minus five, and now you have five net carbs. Let's say the same product has 10 grams of erythritol. If it's erythritol, you can use the whole amount. 10 minus 10, I have zero net carbs left. So just think about that when you're trying to figure out from a product perspective. From a food perspective, it's straight and dirt. But from a product perspective, you have to do a little bit more with the math. Now, what about allulose? Allulose is something that may be relatively new to you. It's really popping up in a lot of different products, especially because the FDA did deem it to have zero effect on insulin or blood sugar. So it's actually a great sweetener to use and that you might start seeing in product. Allulose is actually a type of sugar. Okay, so it's different from a sugar alcohol. But what we know is that it doesn't break down into metabolism of glucose. So it mimics something like fructose, but when it goes in the body, it can't break down in that factor. And if it doesn't break down, it means your blood sugar and your insulin aren't going up. Okay, so allulose is another one you might want to look for in a product that's going to be naturally sweet. Let's say it's a product such as an almond cracker, for example. Almond cracker is a great example of something that probably wouldn't have any sweeteners at all. But in that perspective, you're going to want to look at serving size. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. All right, let's look at protein versus fat in a very low carb dietary pattern. So you want to focus on optimal protein. And that's going to be dependent on a lot of things, your age, your gender, your activity level, your stress level. How much weight do you want to lose? Do you not need to lose weight, right? All those things get factored in. So as you speak with your dietitian or your physician about what's the adequate amount of protein for me, all of those things are going to be determining what your protein content is going to be. Now, what about fat? Less of a calculation on this one, but you do want to focus on the best ones possible. So mono and polyunsaturated fats. When do I give a little bit of gimme room for people that want to have more coconut, more saturated fats? It's when individuals are more specific in getting into ketosis, okay? We do know that coconut oil can have some medium chain triglycerides, which can help to put you in ketosis a little bit quicker. What about plant-based proteins? So a lot of times when people say, oh, I really would like to be low carb, but the plant-based proteins are like, oh, they're, they're really high in carbs, so I can't do that anymore, right? I can't have a bunch of beans, um, but that's not true. On moderate carb approaches, you could. And if you can look at this list that I have here, Really outside of quinoa, which I still would consider more of a lower carb approach, especially with the fiber it has, you really can get a lot of protein without having to get carbohydrate as well. So these are just some examples to show that. What about the keto diet? So I didn't really cover the keto diet in a lot of depth today, but many of you might be interested in it. So if you go back to those definitions, you would recognize that the keto diet is incredibly low in carb. So let me explain what happens in ketosis. I always tell my patients, the body does not care about your big plans. The body will always take over for the quest of survival. So part of that survival is that your body is gonna burn fuel in terms of glucose. It's what it wants, it's what it needs, and it's what it's always gonna grab when it's available. Glucose is it. 
whether you get it from a piece of licorice or you get it from a sweet potato, doesn't matter. That glucose goes into your system, gets stored as glycogen, the body then pulls it. And the brain fuels on glucose as well. So what happens is when you try and go more into ketosis, you start lowering your amount of carb and every day your body is fighting against it. That's kind of called the keto flu when it's the beginning of you getting into ketosis, what I call the metabolic shift. But your body is like, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm still in charge. I still got some glucose. I still have some. We're going to use the glucose, right? But then it gets to a point where the glucose is gone. Your carb content is so low that you no longer have stores. So what happens there is that your body is like, okay, you win. I got to burn fat now. That's the second fuel that I have to, to rely on, right? Glucose is gone. Okay, joke's over, I guess. And the body starts burning fat instead of glucose. But the brain can't burn fat for fuel doesn't like it, doesn't know how to do it. So what happens is as you burn fat, there's a release of ketone bodies and the brain then fuels on those ketone bodies. That is ketosis. If you're looking at levels of ketosis, there are low levels that can lead to weight loss. There's much greater levels that can lead to cognitive benefits, lipid controls, things like that. We do know a ketogenic diet can be very effective in terms of belly fat as well. What about high unsaturated fat to achieve achieve ketosis? Many people will say, oh, no, you got to eat the bacon and the cheese and, you know, the MCT oil, you got to do it all. But what we know is that as long as you're getting some sort of fat in a great amount, your body will still burn on fat. Now, if you don't care about getting into those higher levels of ketosis, you don't have to add in the cheese, the bacon, things like that. You can be more plant-based. So as you can see from this list, there's plenty of things that you can consider. Soy is the only place that's going to add a little bit of carb into it. Okay. So just keep that in mind when you're thinking about structuring the diet. You don't want to have a bunch of soybeans and think that you're going to stay in ketosis because again, your body is going to override you every chance it gets. So even though it's burning on fat, the second it senses that there is a little bit of glucose that you just put in it, it's going to grab it and your ketone bodies go down. What about adherence to a low-carb approach, even if we're looking at something like a ketogenic approach? If we look at adherence, meaning long-term sustainability, long-term ability to be able to stick with it, we know that low-carb approaches are more long-term in terms of success than short-term. So what are some of the things that can screw it up? Overeating. I mentioned almond crackers as an example. If I got a brand of almond crackers that said low-carb or keto-friendly, that is implied for one serving. So if I then grab that bag that I just got from Costco, and Costco's got a lot of great low-carb stuff, and I eat the entire bag on the way home, guess what? I no longer am eating low-carb because I'm eating well over one serving. And that claim is for one serving. So overeating. Don't think that because you're keto, everything can be eaten just how you like it, and there's not going to be any ramification to that. Products are a little bit different because they're based on that serving size. Exercise. Exercise and fasting can both put you in a higher rate of ketosis because it's drawing off those glucose stores. So the same thing diet's doing. Carb creep, shouldn't say creep, sorry. Carb creep is essentially where you think everything you're eating is low carb, but you're eating too much of it again. And it starts to creep in, bringing your ketone bodies down. So let's say, for example, you love eating cashews all the time or peanuts. Those have a lot more carb, even though they're low carb, than something like a macadamia nut. So if you feel like, well, as long as I eat nuts, I'm fine, eating too many of those nuts could be a carb creep. There's also genetic, environmental, social, 
those are all things that can impact your ketone levels and your ability to stay and sustain a low carbohydrate lifestyle. And then what's your transition? Are you a baby steps type of person? Are you going to say like, okay, I'm going to cut my carbs by 10 grams this week and next week, another 10, or are you all in? You know what? I'm cutting them today. I'm looking at this presentation. I've tried everything for belly fat. It's not working. I'm going to start cutting. So your transition is going to be dependent really on how quickly you get into ketosis. If you started with nothing but fast food approach and diet last week, and then you say, I'm going to go into keto, it's going to take longer because your body has so much stored fuel. But if you're someone like me and you're already low carb and you say, oh, I really want to go more keto, it's not going to take that long because my stores of glucose are already low to begin with. How does technology fit in? Let's um, end with this. There's a few things you can look at. You can look at continuous glucose monitors. The downside of that one, I often say, are going to be expense, right? So you get the monitor and then you got to pay monthly fees. So that could be really expensive. Blood glucose is highly, highly accurate, obviously. In terms of ketone monitoring, you can look at blood, breath, and urine. Urine is, you go to Amazon, you get the strips, you test it. Not very accurate. We don't have very high efficacy in terms of the accuracy of those things. Blood, very accurate. You got to prick your finger. The second or the third is, uh, the third approach is looking at breath acetone. So the reason people refer to keto breath is because you have acetone that gets released when your ketone bodies are higher. And that increases the higher your ketone bodies go. So breath analysis is a great option that you could consider as well. And you don't have to prick your finger, things like that. Okay, so just things to think about if you wanted to add technology in, right? Some people just want to go for it and not add that technology. A lot of people, they like to see it. They like to see what their progress is, especially if you are transitioning from low carb to more high ketogenic. You want to see... Are the things that I'm eating really impacting it? Do my ketones keep going up or are they going down? The last point I will make about that is you have to, if you're doing ketone testing, you have to test it multiple times a day, three to five. Don't test one moment in time and think this is your ketone levels. Our ketone levels vary throughout the day. So you want to take the weighted average of three to five measurements. And last, how do products fit into your dietary plan? So number one, I've already talked about this as our, as our summary here. Know your serving size. If you know that there are so many carbs in one serving, limit yourself to that one serving. Again, I'm looking at products here. Focus on quality and quantity, especially for protein and fiber. So quality should be number one. You should be eating things that are giving you a lot of protein, a lot of fiber. It still needs to make sense. I've oftentimes said when we just focus on quantity, we stop caring about quality. So in this approach, I want you to look at both because you have to if you're really going to go low carb. And then choose options you love. The sustainability of any diet will increase if you actually are enjoying it, if you actually enjoy the food you're eating. So if you happen to have a keto cookie or a keto piece of bread and you're like, well, I'm keto, but it all stinks because I hate the food, try a different brand. There's so many different brands that you can consider that in this day and age, you can have so many options at your fingertips. So that's my presentation, everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining this conference again this year. It is such an honor and a privilege for me to come back and spend this time with you and give you some different perspective on how to approach your diet. I hope to see you all next year and just take those baby steps. Anything, any movement towards a better lifestyle is better than no movement at all. Hello, everyone. 
We are going on 20 years now in our journey with BBNR to bring holistic health to the mainstream. It has really all come from a desire to find ways to flatten out the bumps in the road of our lives and be grateful for when days go well. So much innovation and insight is coming out on health and wellness on a daily basis. It's sometimes hard to keep up. We are so grateful for the speakers who join us on this podcast and to all of the guests that come to our Georgetown conference and to those that join us at Gasparilla every year to share their wisdom. At the end of the day, we hope that we have made you curious enough to try some of these tips in your day-to-day life. We hope that you felt their impact on your life as well as the lives of the people that you love. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.